This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father Leo Blasey breaks down the Mass in Part 2 of The Mass Explained. Why do we process the bread and wine to the altar? Who is with us while we sing the Holy, Holy, Holy? Does the Mass end after the concluding rites? Let's find out as I, Donetta Robin, interview Father Leo Blasey. Last week we left off after the profession of faith. This week we continue with the Mass Explained as we enter the Liturgy of the Eucharist with the preparation of the gifts. Okay, we get into the Liturgy of the Eucharist now, and the faithful usually sing a song as the gifts are being prepared, but can you tell us the presentation of the gifts and the preparation of the gifts, exactly what's happening there? Well, the first thing that we need to recognize is those gifts represent us. You know, the the host that are brought up in the ciborium, each one of those hosts represents a member of the congregation. So we're offering ourselves up and to be taken up to the altar and be made part of the sacrifice that's about to take place. Um, Again, the wine is a it's an understanding of the fruit of the work that we do. So we're offering our ability, the, the, the gifts that we've been given by God, we're giving those back to him through the, the wine. And we also take the monetary offering up and we, offer, we recognize that that's part of the gift that we are giving to the church is the fruit of our labor. So, so the, 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 the wine is one part of that and the, the monetary offering is another part of that, that we're offering the the fruits of our labor back to God to make it a part of the sacrifice. So each of us is, if we could do it, we would take everybody in the in the congregation and we'd put them on the altar. And, and they, But that's not practical and it's not, it would lead to chaos and we, we don't want to do that. But, so the, the bread that we, we take and we offer up is a symbol of ourselves to be made one in the body of Christ. And so we're all offered together in the body of Christ when the the celebration of the Eucharist is occurring. My question would be, how can he heal us of the things that we're asking him to heal us for if we don't give them to him so that he mm. can heal us? If we're keeping them bottled up inside and we're holding on to them, then then God can't act in us. You know, God gave us free will when he created us, and we can choose to give things to him or we can choose to hold them and, and keep them back. And those things that we choose to hold back from him tend to harm us because we're not letting God work through those things. So in our joys and in our sorrows and in our sufferings, we can bring ourselves to be one with God. And so we let those things out and we let God be with them in his presence. And he works in us and and he lifts us up. Some of the, the times that I have been closest to God in my life are the times when I was struggling with a, with a loss when my wife passed away, um, when my granddaughter passed away at 19 days, those are the times when I was able to to give those things to God. I felt a true closeness to Him that I didn't feel. I haven't felt in any other time of my life where where God truly wants to us to understand that He is with us and that He's feeling those things with us and that that He can make them work for for the greater good. Oh, that's beautiful. Tell us 
what you're doing at the altar during the this time of um, the preparation of gifts? What what is the priest doing? Well, once the gifts are brought up, then the, the priest is preparing for the the sacrifice, and so we take the gifts and we we offer them to God, who has given them to us, and we're recognizing that that those gifts are are part of His magnificent gift to us and and being Christian people. And we ask God to bless them and and make them acceptable. Because again, everything that's physical has flaws. Mm -hmm. And if we only look at the flaws, then we we miss out on the bigger picture. But we can take everything that God gives us and offer it to him and, and he can make it where those flaws are insignificant. They don't matter anymore because he is present with the gifts that we have. And so when God is present, perfection is present and the flaws no longer matter. And we can recognize that in ourselves too, that, that if we actually allow God to be in us, the, the flaws that we have as individuals don't matter anymore because God is there with us. And a beautiful part of that introductory prayer, those blessing of the gifts is the priest recognition that he is human just like everybody else that's in the congregation. And so as part of that preparatory offering, the priest asked God to, to wash him of his iniquity, of any wrong that he has done, and cleanse him of his sins so that he can offer the Mass in the way that it needs to be offered with the purity of heart and spirit that, that is necessary to be, to stand in the, in the person of Christ. Then we're going into the preface. You, you say the prayer over the offerings, and then we go into the preface. Can you explain what that is, what you're doing there? Well, that, that is prayer. That preface is actually calling us into the presence of the, the, the sacrificial offering that's taking place in heaven. So that preface should help us to recognize that we're truly in the presence of the, of the God of God and the Lord of Lord in heaven and with all the angels and saints. So that's part of that that prayer is that we recognize that we're in the presence of the angels and the saints and that we're we're members of the body of Christ and we're offering ourselves up as part of that sacrifice. Right, so if somebody's mourning, this is a great place to be with your loved one. Absolutely. <laughs> Man, I, I know for myself, I have felt my mother's presence during this time so strongly it's brought me to tears. <laughs> and there are a number of prefaces that, that focus, you know, that there are seasonal prefaces that focus on the Easter and the, the, the Paschal mystery and the Christmas celebration. And then there are just common prefaces that, that can be used at any Mass. And when we say, again, when we say common and we say ordinary within the church, we're not talking about bland or, you know, worthless things we're talking about everyday things and we recognize that that our everyday lives are important and that everyday mass is important and that those prayers just help us to to recognize that our daily life is beneficial to who we are and as a per, as a people and as a church right so after the priest is praying this and uniting us again with the heavenly host with our you know church and purgatory and in heaven and then we all sing the holy holy now tell us about the holy holy why why is that such a awesome prayer at this time <laughs> well if, if you go to the book of revelation and you you hear john talk about 
the heavenly vision, he says that the angels are constantly singing in heaven, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts. So we're joining ourselves with this, the singing of the, the angels and the saints in heaven, the constant song that is being sung for eternity in heaven. Holy, 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 Lord mm. God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. And then we recognize the Lamb. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We're, we're making ourselves one with the sacrificial offering that we're, we're bringing to the church. It's, it's a beautiful song and prayer. And if you're struggling with peace in your life, then, then saying the holy, 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 the Sanctus is is a beautiful prayer that, that allows you to, to really feel the presence of God. You know, a lot of people only say the holy, holy, holy during the Mass, but it's a beautiful prayer to be said at any time mm-hmm. when we want to really feel God's presence with us. Okay, and then we enter into the Eucharistic prayer. So tell us what happens during the Eucharistic prayer, and you have a variety you can choose from, correct? Yes. There, there are four common Eucharistic prayers. There are Eucharistic prayers for reconciliation and for various needs. A lot of people are only familiar with the, the first four, um, but again, the, the Missal has a number of varieties, and you, the priest can choose those based on the, the Mass of the day and the needs for the people. And that goes with the Masses, too. If there's no special feast on a particular day, the priest can say a Mass for for peace or for the unity of the Christian people or mm-hmm. Those masses are all available to him, and and I would challenge priests to to really look at the the options that are available to them, and, and don't just fall back on the, the easy and the, the you know the the things that we're used to, to to really look at those other masses that are available and, and use those for the benefit of the people of God's. So the Eucharistic prayer one is everybody recognizes that as the long drawn out one, but it's actually the Roman. Prayer. It's the it's the original prayer that was said in the Roman Church, and um, it's so it's ancient and it's beautiful, and, and it you know it, it draws us into the, our relationship with with Christ in the Mass, and it recognizes who we are in relationship to Him. And again, I think it's that canon is the one is one that people need to hear a couple of times throughout the year so that they can be familiar with that and recognize the beauty of that canon. So, um, probably the most common ones used, especially at weekday masses, are, are Eucharistic prayer two and three. They're shorter. Um, that doesn't mean that they don't have everything that they need in them, but they're they're a little bit more brief. And, and Eucharistic prayer two really follows the, the scriptural description of what happened at the Last Supper. And so a lot of people are attracted to that, not just because it's brief, but because it it really draws them into that, that Last Supper and, and the, the impact of, of what is going on at the Last Supper. So it's a beautiful prayer. All, all the Eucharistic prayers are beautiful, and, and they, they have a, an exactness that, that really should, if people listen to it and, and really understand what's going on during the Eucharistic prayer, it, it's a beautiful thing. So. And tell us what you're doing, like the consecration end of it. Of course, we're making the, the bread and wine, those those two common elements on the altar. We're, through Christ and, his, and the Holy Spirit, we're making that bread and wine into the, the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And, you know, a beautiful gift that Christ has given us to be able to receive him on the altar and then eventually at the 
at the culmination of the the Eucharistic celebration into ourselves. But as Catholics, we believe that that's truly taking place. That's not just a symbolic offering. It's not just a, you know a, a short-term deal where, where Christ comes and goes into the bread. We believe that the bread and wine truly become the body and blood of our Lord. And he's present with us in a physical way on the altar. And I have no idea why God deemed me worthy to be a priest of the Catholic Church. But I have to make sure that, that when I prepare myself to, to say the Mass and to say these prayers and to call Jesus Christ down onto the altar, that, that I am as worthy as I can possibly be. And so I can't take that lightly. And hopefully the people that are sitting out in the pews can, can recognize that in me, that, that, that I am absolutely 100% given to what I'm doing at that time. And that helps them to be closer to Christ themselves during that time. When are we ringing the bells and why? Well, the first time, it depends. Some of the churches don't ring the bells at the epiclesis. Okay. The epiclesis is when, we, when the priest makes the sign of the cross over the gifts and asks God to make them worthy. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the statement that we'll use Eucharistic prayer too, since everybody's most familiar with that, but. Make holy, therefore, these gifts, we pray, by sending down your spirit upon them like the dewfall, so that they may become for us the body and blood of Christ. A lot of the churches ring a bell then as the priest makes the sign of the cross over the gifts. And we're again, we're asking God just to, to send the spirit to be present with those gifts so that, that they can be the fulfillment of, of what we're endeavoring to do there at the Mass. And then the other two times that the bells ring, and, and those are almost universal, almost everywhere you go, they're going to have bells that... When the, when the bread is consecrated and when the wine is consecrated, when the bread becomes the body of Christ, we ring the bell, recognizing that Christ has made himself present to us there. And then at the end, when the wine is consecrated and becomes the blood of Christ, when it's elevated, then we ring the bells there. One of the reasons that we do that is because the, it used to be that there was a wall between the sanctuary and the nave of the church. The nave is where the, the lay people would have been at, and there was a wall between so when the bells were rung, that was a, it letting the people know that those events were going on and that they should prayerfully enter into that event that's going on at that time. With the modern churches, with the nave and the sanctuary inclusive in, in one, we, we can actually physically see it, so we don't necessarily need the bells. And for a while, some of the churches did away with the bells because they felt that, you know, if everybody's paying attention and everybody sees what's going on, then the bells are kind of superfluous. But um, the rec- I think it, it was recognized in a very short period of time that that the smells and the bells of the church are part of the ritual, and that you know we need to continue to include those, even if the primary reason that they were there originally is is not necessary anymore. The beauty of of the actions is still there, and so making that part of it is is a good thing. So. I think it awakens the senses. Yeah. And then after after the consecration, the faithful are able to respond with a uh, proclamation of faith. Yes. Okay. Did you want to say anything about that, or is did that um, good enough? <laughs> basically, we're recognizing the, the death and resurrection and the salvation that is offered to us through the Eucharist, and so we profess that as being part of our faith. And again, that's allowing the the lay faithful to to be part of the Eucharistic prayers. 
And then the Eucharistic prayer is continued or finished. And did you want to say anything more about that? The second part of the Eucharistic prayer after the consecration and the, the faithful statement that just helps us to recognize the fullness of the community of saints. We're remembering that, that Christ has given us those gifts and then we humbly ask God to make us part of that. And then we recognize those who have died and those who are in the church and who are struggling in the church today. And we ask God to, to just make us fully part of that so that we can be active in the celebration of, of the gift that we're about to receive in the Eucharist itself. Again, if, if you can listen to that and, and really make yourself part of that, it, it just draws you closer and closer to the, the Lord who's present there on the altar. Right. And I know we're supposed to listen, but I also like to follow along because then I'm getting it with my eyes and my ears. <laughs> we don't all learn in the same way. That's some right. Some of us are auditory <laughs> learners, and some of us are, are learn by reading or by seeing. Right. Um, and that's the reason that the Mass is configured the way that it is. It, it helps to draw everybody in if they're, if they're willing to put a little bit of effort into it. But we also have to recognize that the, the traditional Mass people didn't have missiles to follow along in or mm -hmm. missilettes. Um, so it's designed where it can be effective if all you're able to do is, is listen and, and then witness. And that's the importance of the, the readings and the, and the prayers that we say is to, to help people to really make themselves one with, with God as we go along. Okay, so after the Eucharistic prayer, we stand and recite the Lord's Prayer. So tell us about the Lord's Prayer, why it's inserted at this time, and what our posture and participation should be at this time. Well, as you mentioned, we're called to stand for it because, again, we're, we're entering into prayer, and we're recognizing that, that God is there in the midst of us. And going, again, back to the royalty, when, the, when you were in the re presence of, physical presence of royalty, you always stood. And so as we bring ourselves into one with, with God in the in the prayer of the Our Father, we, we recognize that we're calling God to be present with us. So we, we stand as we say it. And it's placed right here in, in the communion rite because, number one, it's, it's the prayer that Jesus taught us to, to recognize God. And so we have Jesus present with us on the altar. So we say the prayer that Jesus gave us, and we, we call God to be present with us. We recognize all the forms of prayer in the Our Father. The beauty of the Our Father is that, that we have praise and adoration. We have petition. We have confession and, and penitential part of it. And then we ask God for his blessing. So, so all the forms of prayer are included in the Our Father. Mm -hmm. and, and how can we fail but to, to really recognize God's presence as we say that prayer as a community? We say it as one. And the priest, as just as when he's saying the the collect and the and the prayer after mass, the priest is standing in the orans position, which means that he has his hands out at at about shoulder height, and he's receiving the prayers of the people, and offering them up to God and receiving God's blessing, and offering them back to the people. So as we're praying the Our Father, our position, everybody's position is standing. The traditional position for the, the people in the pews is that they have their hands folded, offering themselves to God in the, in the vertical aspect of the cross. Mm -hmm. So we, we offer it in prayer with our hands folded. Um, it has become 
kind of a new tradition among different groups that they hold hands during the Our Father, and a lot of them, for some reason, have began elevating their hands when they're holding them. So they're the people in the pews. A lot of them are standing in the Oran's position, which is never specified as as being a position for the laity during the Mass. Um, it originated as a Protestant custom, and, and I think that part of it was that as a lot of Catholics became involved in the charismatic movements, which was much earlier in the Protestant church than it was in the Catholic church, those people that befriended each other in the, among the Protestants and the, the Catholics in the charismatic movements started using the, the holding of the hands during the Our Father as as kind of a community offering, and then the charismatic Catholics brought that back into the Mass. Now, there's nothing that says that you can't hold hands during the Our Father, but again, we have rituals for a reason, and we want to do things in the right way, and, and sometimes bringing things into the Mass that, that are not originally part of it takes away from from the prayerful position that we're, we're called to be in at the time. A lot of the African churches have what they call liturgical dance. And liturgical dance is not condemned by the entire church. I mean, in Africa, that's a beautiful part of their mass. But there was a period of time when, when they tried to bring that liturgical dance into the, the Western church, and it just didn't work. And it, it distracted people from, from the celebration of the mass. And, but if you read the documents, it says that, that cultural customs can be used in their location. So in Africa where dance is a, a major part of their lives there, cultural dance can be part of it. Trying to incorporate that into a, an American mass is, is not really the thing that we want to do because it distracts from the celebration of the mass. So, and it's the same way with deviation from prayer postures. You know, if you choose to do that, then, then that's what you choose to do. And I'm not going to standing up at the altar, tell somebody, you can't stand in the Oran's position while we're praying to our Father. I'm, that's just not what priests are supposed to do. But but we need to recognize as faithful that that there are positions that, that we're called to, to be in. And there's a reason for those positions. You know, the, the prayerful position with the hands folded is a, is a beautiful and ancient form of, of offering ourselves up to God. And, and I don't think that we should just throw that out because there's a, a a new way that we like a little bit better. Mm-hmm. So when people stand in Oran's position, aren't they putting themselves in the place of priest? Or that, am I wrong in well, that? That's very possibly what's going on. I, I don't think that most people would think of it that yes. way. Um, and that's the reason that I think that it's accepted is because people aren't thinking of it that way. They think they're just offering as a group in a better way um, but again, I think that before we decide that something is better or worse than the traditional way, we really need to, to understand what it is that we're doing. And if the people really understood that they're, the position that they're doing is supposed to be the, the position of the celebrant offering the Mass, then they would probably refrain from doing that. Right. Tell us about the sign of peace. After the, the doxology, the prayer that we say after the Our Father, we have the sign of peace. And, you know, when we recognize that the Our Father is, is a focus on the vertical aspect of our relationship with God and, and we're recognizing that we're, we're offering ourselves to God, the sign of the peace focuses on the horizontal aspect. So 
we're recognizing that we're one with, with all the people that are present and all the people on earth. And the sign of the peace gives us an opportunity to, to really fully give ourselves to each other. And again, we have customs that have, have come into that part of the, the mass and it, it, it can tend to go overboard. Um, I was at a, a parish up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where the sign of peace took 20 minutes. Oh, my. They, they just went all over. Everybody left their pews. I don't know how everybody got back to where they were supposed <laughs> to be at. But, but um, for me, if you're going to have that kind of a sign of peace, do it before Mass. Uh-huh. You can greet everybody before Mass. The sign of peace is just a recognition that, that we're all one people. And that, so if I offer the sign of peace to the person next to me and they turn and offer it to the person next to them then as a communion as, as a people we've made the sign of peace to everybody so so we don't have to run around all over church and, and greet everybody and and tell them that you know the peace of the lord be with you we've done that just by offering it to those that are nearest to us now if there are only two people in church and they're standing across the aisle from each other yes they can go make the sign of peace across the aisle but for the most part at Mass, if you're leaving your pew or even running from one end of the pew to the other end of the pew, then you've, you're kind of taking that overboard and you're distracting from the, the Eucharistic celebration that, that this is part of, not separate from. So, Okay, and then two things on this. Not all churches do the sign of peace. Well, all, all churches do the sign of peace. They just don't have you do the sign of peace to each other. Okay. So we all, in every Mass, we say the prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church, and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will, who live and reign forever and ever. That's part of the Mass. Okay. And then the priest says, The peace of the Lord be with you always. That's always part of the Mass. What can be, and it even says in the Missal, it says, If appropriate, then we offer the sign of peace to each other. So Okay, so if we're at a Mass and the priest doesn't say that, let us offer the sign of peace to one another, it's not like they're doing something wrong. Correct. It's just that's what's being done for that well, Mass. Or, and, you know, or it's been a distraction and he skips that part right. or what. <laughs> you know, it, it's hard to say why a priest might decide not to do, allow the people to offer the sign of peace to each other. It could have been that He's had a bad experience and that somebody took it way overboard and, and was running around the church. And he decided that the best way to resolve that is to just not allow the people to, to offer the sign of priest. I've talked to a couple of priests who say, well, you know, it's just too possible to spread viruses if, oh. we, if we shake hands. Well, you know, the traditional sign of peace was a kiss. Mm-hmm. I could see saying, well, we don't want to kiss each other if, if we're, if, especially if there's diseases around but um, but that's a lot of their thoughts and I've been to a couple of the school masses where the school administration came up and said you know we really don't want to do the sign of peace because we don't the viruses are spreading fast enough already and we don't want to mm-hmm. contribute to that so you know if that's a real concern then then I can understand not doing it but um, it's part of the the right to allow the people to do that and Again, the, but the right says that if it's appropriate, if the priest doesn't feel that it's appropriate at that particular mass, then then he's not obliged to to allow the people to do that. And you can 
turn to the person next to you and offer them the silent peace, even if the, the priest doesn't say that. It just... Okay. And what is the appropriate, in our culture, our Western culture here in America, what's the appropriate response when we're given the sign of peace? Is it a handshake and some people hug, some people kiss? I mean, is, is there anything that's right or wrong there? No. Again, relationship, I think, specifies more what you do with that than, than actual right or wrong um, a husband and wife can kiss at the sign of peace. Mm-hmm. Again, that's the, the traditional sign of peace was was a kiss. Now, it was a cheek-to-cheek kiss. It wasn't a, a kiss on the lips. But if a husband and wife choose to kiss on the lips at that sign, then it's, you know, basically they're offering peace. And, and how you show that, a lot of people are averse to hugs. They don't want to hug. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've even seen a few people that when they're given the sign of peace, they just kind of throw a couple <laughs> yes. of fingers up but they don't want to shake hands either you know people are are comfortable or uncomfortable with with con- particular contact and and we need to appreciate that and and greet them in the way that they're comfortable but i think in the western church mostly the the tradition is that we just shake hands and that's a a good way to do it and so We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, computer, smartphone app, or Amazon Echo, please know. We'll be right back with more about Part 2 of the Mass Explained with Father Leo Blasey. Messenger Catholic Books and Gifts in Hayes is proud to sponsor this double-edged sword program. Thank you for opening your heart and tuning in to this station. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. John chapter 1, verse 5. Darkness is the absence of light. We are living in a dark world today. When the light exposes our sins, it is our sinful nature to turn away from it. But if you choose to embrace the light and follow it, you will always find your way home. Double-edged sword cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. Part two of the Mass Explained. With Father Leo Blazy. So then we're entering into the communion rite. Now, there's several things that the priest does at the altar, like he breaks the bread, and people might think, he's breaking Jesus. <laughs> Tell us all about that and what you're actually doing and the, and the meanings behind it. Well, if we, we can go back to the, the Eucharistic prayer and recognize that it says in there that Jesus broke the bread right. and gave it to the disciples. There were a couple of years right after the, the new order came out where the priests were breaking the the host at that time, and, and that was never called for, and it was 
put down pretty quickly because the actual fractioning rite is right here at the beginning of the Lamb of God. So the host is broken, and then a, a small piece of the, the body of Christ, the host, is put in to the, the, the chalice, and it's mingled with the wine. So part of the fracturing rite is to say this prayer. May this mingling of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ bring eternal life to us and receive it. That's a prayer that the priest says quietly as the, the community is beginning the Lamb of God. If it's sung, the community's probably already begun that by the time the priest does that prayer. If the priest has to initiate the, the Lamb of God, then he usually says the, the mingling prayer first and then begins the Lamb of God. The, the symbology of it, the, the beauty of the, the action is just, it's overwhelming when you, especially as a, a young priest and, and beginning to do that, it, it's just the recognition of the action that I'm taking at that time just really overwhelms my senses and it just draws me closer and closer to God all the time. I, I have really come to understand the beauty of the, the rituals of the Mass as a participant in the, in the offering of the Mass. So explain that to us, what you're, so we can understand it better, like the commingling of the bread and the wine, and what does that mean exactly? Well, we recognize that, that in, the, in each part of the Eucharist, whether it's the bread or the wine, that we have the fullness of, of Christ, the body, blood, soul, and divinity. Right. But in that action, uh, we're, we're physical people, and so we do physically physical things to help us to recognize what God is doing in, in, within the action. And so... The taking and the breaking of the bread is recognizing the brokenness of Christ in his passion. And then we mingle the body and blood as a, a symbol of making ourselves one with Christ. So as, as we bring the body and blood together, we're bringing the body of the church, which is us, in with the, with the blood of Christ. The, Christ bled at the cross to bird the church, and, and we're brought out of of his body and the, and the, the water and, and blood that came from his side. And in this offering, we're bringing that back together again. We're bringing his body and blood back together, his church and himself in this sacrifice that we're offering. Okay, and explain too that we're entering into the one sacrifice and not sacrificing over and over, like right. some have accused us uh, of. The Protestants really have a struggle with the Mass because they believe that we're, we're offering Jesus over again and again and again. But if, if you understand what we said at the beginning where we're, we're making ourselves part of the one eternal Mass in heaven, then Christ is only ever offered once. The, the sacrifice is, is a once and for all eternity because it's happening in heaven. If, the, if Christ giving of himself only happened here on earth, then it would have been back in 33 AD and, and then that would have been it. But, mm -hmm. but because Christ takes that offering into heaven with him and it's part of the eternal mass that we recognize in the book of Revelation, we're bringing ourselves into that celebration. We're not offering Christ over and over again, but we're, we're bringing ourselves in this particular moment in time into the eternal celebration that, that's ongoing now and forever. So trying to, to break that off and make it just an action here, present here on earth is, is 
murdering the sacrifice of the mass. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Thank you for that. Okay. And then then we're moving into the actual communion itself, correct? Right. Um, the, the priest receives, or actually before he receives, he says the prayer, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. That is one last opportunity for us to to really offer our, our failings up. So we're, we're witnessing the body of Christ being elevated in the, in the front of us, and, and it's an opportunity for us just to, to recognize that, that Christ is there and that we're about to receive him and really to offer any of our unworthiness up and, and ask God to make us worthy through his grace. So. Um, we've done it a number of times through the Mass up to this point, and this is just that. And I've actually heard people say, well, I've, I've the devil has tempted me while I'm standing in the line going to communion. And, and the devil will do that. He, you know, he wants to distract you, and he wants to draw you away from the, the beauty of the gift of Christ. So even in the line going up to communion, he's going to continue to abuse you. So mm-hmm. um, if you've find that happens, then, then you offer it up and you ask for forgiveness even in the communion line. But um, the church wants to make sure that they give you every opportunity during the ritual to to ask for forgiveness. And, and this is the last time prior to actual reception of the Eucharist that, that we offer up our failings and our, our unworthiness and ask God to to make us worthy so, and to heal us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the devil is sneaking around every corner, that's for sure. And <laughs> For me, one thing that I've learned is whenever those thoughts enter my mind that are not of God, I just say, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, save souls just so fast, <laughs> and he kind of flees, <laughs> and it goes away. So, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, save souls, especially mine. <laughs> I don't remember which particular saint it was that said it, but one of them said that, you know, just the name of Mary causes the devil to shriek in pain and flees. Oh, wow. So even if we just say, you know, Mary, Mother, and that's all we say, then it should be a benefit to us. So. Okay. So as we're going to communion, tell us what our bodily posture should be right before we receive communion and, it, and then what we should be doing when we go back to the pew. Well, our, our posture starting with when we're, we're in the pew, we're kneeling, and then we stand up to, to get in the processional line to receive the Eucharist. We need to be focused on the gift that we're about to be given. You watch the communion line, and I try not to do that because it, it can be frustrating to me, but as people approach, they're looking all over the place, and they're you know sometimes they're waving to their friends that are in one of the pews. When we're going up to receive communion, that's the, one of the most sacred times in our lives, and we need to make sure that we're really paying attention to to what we're about to receive and make sure that we're making ourselves present to God so that we can receive it in a way that, that really honors the gift that we've been given. And then as we, so as we approach to receive, um, the traditional way to receive in the United States, the way that the bishops has approved, is that we stand and that we can receive either on the tongue or, or in the hand. So as we approach the, the Blessed Sacrament, we bow, reverential bow, and then we either open our mouth so that we can receive on the tongue or, or we, we make our hands into a throne to receive 
the, the king of the world into our hands. So we, we take our non-dominant hand and we place it on top of our dominant hand. We allow the minister to place the host onto that hand. And then we pick it up with our dominant hand to make sure that we don't accidentally drop it. And we, we place it onto our tongue ourselves. And the preferable way to do that is is right there as as we receive it, we pick it up and we, and we we put it in our mouth. You can take a step off to the one side or the other if you think that's going to help the flow of things, but we should never walk away with the host in our hand. It should always be in our mouth before we move, we turn to walk away. And then there are a lot of people that make a sign of the cross after they've received the blessed sacrament. That's not one of the mandatory requirements, but it's a reverential act, and, and anything that, as long as it's done reverentially I don't think it's inappropriate so um, and then as we're, we're going back to the pew and as we we kneel in the pew um, one of the variations that we do in the United States is that we kneel after we receive the blessed sacrament the the missile itself actually says that the the normal posture after receiving communion is standing but I think that that is probably throughout the world there not all the churches have kneelers and, and a lot of countries none of the churches have kneelers mm. so so it because of that the the, the statement in the, the missile is that the the normal posture is standing but the catholic bishops have said that because in the united states 99 percent of the churches have kneelers mm -hmm. that the preferred posture in the united states is to to kneel after receiving communion so and i think i've only been one or two places where they actually continued to stand in the United States, and I never asked the question why, but but if you're in a place where they do that, you know, do as the rest of the people are doing. Um, it's not against the rules. As a matter of fact, it's the universal rule. So so being belligerent and saying, well, I'm going to kneel because that's what we're supposed to do. You, that's not necessary. Now, if somebody that's capable of kneeling or standing goes back to the pew and sits down, then then maybe a, a little fraternal correction might be mm -hmm. after mass. Don't don't make a scene there in in the church and you know what are you doing? <laughs> um, but say a prayer for them and then after mass you you might if you feel like you have that kind of relationship with that person approach them and ask them you know I, I noticed this is there a particular reason uh, mm -hmm. and they might have a perfectly valid reason for doing it. So, uh, but we never want to place ourselves in a pious position where we think that we're holier than somebody else because of a particular way that we want to receive communion and we choose to do it or because of a, a posture that we, we choose to take it after we have received. Because right. some people um, might want a genuflect before they receive, and I've even seen people um, kneel to receive. Neither of those are against the rules. There was a time when the the instruction said that the the priest was to call those people aside and, and tell them what the the norm for the United States was. Because the bishop's position was that we want again to be a communal organization. We want so we, the posture should be similar. So for a period of time, it said that the pastor was to call those people aside and, and to inform them that the the normal posture in the United States is to receive standing and not to genuflect prior to. But when the, the latest version of the missile came out, that was removed, so it's not called for anymore. Um, again, if it's done reverently and it's mm -hmm. done without calling attention to yourself, mm -hmm. 
and I think just as importantly, if it doesn't make you feel like you're better than everybody else that's receiving, um, then it's not wrong. But if we're receiving in a particular way because we think it makes us better than everybody else and it, it, it draws attention to ourselves and to our ego, then, then maybe we need to reevaluate mm -hmm. the reason that we're doing it that way. I would never tell anybody that they can't receive kneeling or that they can't genuflect before. But I would ask them to understand why it is that they're doing that. Mm -hmm. and, and if they, if it's truly something that they feel that they're called to do in that way, then, then that's fine. Right, because they are receiving the King of Kings. Absolutely. Lord, so. Okay, so while we're kneeling back in the pew, what should be, can we just start saying our personal prayers? Should we, what should we be doing there? If, if we are singing as a community, if there's a, song, a communion song, then we're supposed to be, I mean, we've just received communion. We've made ourselves one with everybody. So if there's a song being sung, we should participate in it. This is a, a good opportunity for me to bring up, again, the, the full active and faithful participation. The, the reason that the church brought the Mass into the vernacular was there was an expectation that we would be involved with each other, that we would really be able to participate in the Eucharist. And there's a number of, of priests, um, I would say young priests, but that's not really accurate. There are a number of priests in this country that have decided that, well, when we brought the Mass into vernacular, we lost all the reverence because, you know, mm -hmm. nobody participates and, and nobody wants to, to be involved in it. So, so why are we doing it in the vernacular? If it was more reverent when we did it the the Rome in the Roman rite and and in the Latin, then then why don't we go back to that and and really try to get that reverence back? Well, for me, my call would be to let the people know that this is how they're supposed to be participating, make themselves active, make themselves participate, and understand the beauty of what it is that they're participating in. And singing is part of the Mass. So if we're singing, if we have common songs that we're singing as part of the ritual, then we should participate in the songs. Now, we should all be given time to quietly pray reverently after the, the Eucharist. So there should be a period, and usually that should be when the priest goes back to his chair and sits, there should be a period of quiet where we can, can pray. And that gives everybody the opportunity to really focus on the presence of Christ within themselves. And, and that's an important part of, of what we do after mm -hmm. communion is recognizing the gift we have received. And I know that there are a number, especially a number of youth groups who stay after the Mass. You know, after the, the recessional hymn is sung, they, they stay and they quietly give that time to God and, and thank God for the gift that they have received after the Mass. And, and that's a beautiful thing. Especially when you see a large group of young people that, that are that reverent that they stay and do that. Um, and I would ask everybody to evaluate within themselves just how they need to, to make that reverential prayer. And, and if they're not given the opportunity during the Mass to do it, then do it after Mass. I mean, mm -hmm. Christ isn't going anywhere. That's right. <laughs> Okay, so when is it appropriate for the faithful to sit down after communion? It's appropriate to sit down after the, the Blessed Sacrament is in repose, which okay. means that once the, the remnant of the Eucharist that was brought out is returned to the tabernacle, 
And as soon as the door is closed, then the the missile calls for relaxation of posture, which means that it's okay to sit down. So, okay. So usually that happens right after the priest goes back to the altar. He he brings all the the remaining host from the the extraordinary ministers and combines them into the ciborium that goes back into the tabernacle, and then he carries the tabern or the ciborium back to the tabernacle. And once he closes the door, then the posture can be relaxed and everybody can sit down. Now, if you just got back to your pew a couple of seconds before that and you want to kneel down and, and say a short prayer, then, then it's perfectly okay to do that. But the missile calls for the posture to be relaxed after the, the Blessed Sacrament is in repose. Okay. So after communion, the priest sits down and we have a little bit of silent time. And then how do... That's the climax of the Mass, so it, it jumps off real fast after that. <laughs> the closing part of the Mass is pretty brief. Yes, so explain that to us. Um, well, the first thing is that there's the, the prayer after communion. That's part of the, the prayer that's in the Missal. And basically, it's, it's calling us, if, if we haven't been able to do it ourselves, it's calling us to recognize the, the gift that we have received and, and to recognize that we're called as a people to to carry that into the world. And after that prayer, after communion, then there's some debate about when the actual mass ends. And the reason there's a debate about that is because in the United States, the majority of our churches make announcements at the end of mass. And mm. um, I know that there are a lot of churches that have moved the announcements at the beginning of mass to to make sure that they are, are doing the, the right thing at the end of mass. By and large, in the United States, it's recognized that once the that prayer after communion is done, that the Mass is, is officially over, except that, that takes away the final blessing. It ta- that moves the final blessing and the sending rite outside of the Mass, and, and I don't know that I really agree with that 100% now. Um, again, it's, it's pretty common in the United States that after the prayer, after communion, the, the announcements are made. And, if the pastor is, is okay with that, then I guess then we can continue to do that. But I really like it when I've seen it, the announcements done before Mass. The only problem with that is you miss a, a large portion of the people that, that come in right at the last minute. Of course, when you make the announcements at the end of Mass, there are a large number of people that leave right after communion, so you're missing them too. The only way to remedy that would be to make it right after the homily, and then you, you don't want to do that because you're interrupting the Mass. So, right. Um, for me, putting the announcements in the bulletin is probably the best thing to do and let people read it for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an interesting thing, though, sitting at the parish office and you get people that call in, what time are confessions? What time is this? What time is that? And it's all in the bulletin. And, and the bulletin's available online and they've got an application that has the bulletin on it. And, you know, it's, it's just surprising how many people call in and, and ask for particular times, and even after they've been made in the announcements at church. So um, I don't think you can ever get everybody included in, in every announcement, so so I don't worry about that too much. But uh, again, I, I think that it's, there should be a certain amount of weight given to making sure that we don't interrupt the Mass with, with announcements and with, with things that are outside of the Mass. So. Okay. And then the concluding rite, the priest gives us a blessing and sends us forth, mm-hmm. so explain all that. Um, 
and for me, that's an important part to point out because, you know, we, we say that it's the conclusion of the Mass, but in reality, the Mass never ends. Mm. The, the sending rite, we're, we receive a blessing, and the priest tells us to go mm-hmm. and be the church to the world, which means that we're taking the experience that we just had in the Mass with us. And if we see the concluding rite of the Mass as the end, then we can allow that to to fall away and, and not pay attention mm-hmm. to it. But if we understand that that we're continuing the Mass as we leave the church and, and into our daily lives, then, then it makes it a much more valuable thing for us. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's important for people to understand that, that just because the, the ritual has concluded at church doesn't mean that, that mass is over and that we we can go back to to being the secular people that we are when we're when we're not at mass mm-hmm. we're called to be something more and, and our participation in the the gospel message in the world is just as important as our participation in the mass is there anything else that you'd like to say about the mass and participation before we conclude no i think we covered all the notes that i had so well i tell you what father leo we are blessed that god called you into the priesthood and we thank you for your time and coming in to the studio today and explaining the mass thank you so much i appreciate you giving me the opportunity to come in thank you for listening to double-edged sword cut into the heart of a deceptive culture Please know that The Mass Explained, Part 1 and Part 2, will be available for free download at Divine Mercy Radio's website at dvmercy.com. It will also be available for those who have downloaded the free smartphone app. Please know you can listen to Divine Mercy Radio via radio, computer, smartphone app, or Amazon Echo. If you need help tuning in to Divine Mercy Radio on any of these devices, please call our office at 785-621-4110. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio, KBDM 88.1 Hayes and KRTT 88.1 Great Bend. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.